Thank you for joining us for this podcast of the Family Fellowship of Greenville, located in Greenville, Texas. If you'd like more information about our church, please log on to www.familyfellowship.us or email us at info at familyfellowship.us. Now here's lead pastor, Paul Blue. Thank you, Ross. Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. A few years back, a movie came out called The Bucket List and kind of got people to thinking about, you know, things they wanted to accomplish before they kicked the bucket. And, uh, you know, for something to be bucket list worthy, you know, it has to be something that you've decided um, that you just can't go, go through life without at least experiencing it at least once. One thing that I think that nobody should go through life without experiencing at least that one time is the long car trip with small children. So so follow me on in this hypothetical here. You're taking your family from Greenville or from the Greenville area to South Padre Island for vacation, which is a roughly a nine hour trip. And you get to Royce City. And and the little voice comes from the back seat. Daddy, are we there yet? No, no, baby, we're not there yet. How much longer? Well, about eight hours and 40 minutes. And then they see the water. You know, they finally see the water. Daddy, are we there yet? No, that's Lake Ray Hubbard. <laughs> well, how much longer? Well, we've still got about eight hours and 15 minutes to go. Nine hours in a car for children is an eternity. And nine hours in a car with small children can be an eternity for parents, too. But one thing in the life of the Christ follower that seems like an eternity, that seems like it's taking forever, is for the second coming of Christ to occur. You see, Jesus made a promise to his disciples. And he told them, he says, I'm I'm going away, but I'm going to come back. We read about it in John chapter 14, the last part of verse 2 and verse 3. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he said, And when everything is ready, when I'm done preparing that place, I will come and get you, and then you will always be with me. But it's been over 2,000 years since Jesus made that promise to return, and he still hasn't come back. And we get impatient. Yesterday afternoon, I told my wife that I had to go ship a box, and um, I went and got a box, and I brought it back to the bottom box, brought it back to the church, and I taped it all up, put all the stuff in it, and got it ready. And I took it to Staples and stood in line, and all the stuff. You know, it just takes a while sometimes to do all that. And and then my parents had had I had my parents' uh, igloo cooler, so I well, I'm gonna run that by while I'm in town. And so I sat and talked with my parents, and so I get a text from Lynn, "Where are you?" Actually, I think it said. Does it take this long to ship a box? 
you know, I mean, I, I did a lot more stuff than I told her I was going to do. But the thing is, is we get impatient when we expect someone to return and then they don't show up. And so it's been 2,000 years. And we've been expecting Christ to return and, and he hasn't he hasn't come back yet. And the thing that I want you to understand is God's watch doesn't tick like ours do. You, you have to remember 2,000 years to to God is is like two days. In Second Peter chapter three verse eight says, "But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day." So so we have to remember that what seems like a long time to us has just been a couple of days on on God's calendar. And, and the other thing that we have to remember is what motivates God for His return is not the same thing that motivates us. You see, we want the second coming to happen so that we can escape all the garbage of this world. We can get to the joys of heaven. You know, we have in mind all the stuff that's going to make heaven so awesome. No sickness, no pain, no sorrow, all of that stuff. No more no more death. And, and then, yes, we get to be with Jesus and we get to be with God. And so that's our motivation. We want We want to get to heaven because it's good for us. But that's not what motivates God. Yes, God wants you to be able to experience all those things. And yes, God wants to spend eternity with you. But there's others that he wants to spend eternity with as well that have yet to receive Christ as their Savior. So Second Peter, we read uh, verse 8. The very next verse, verse 9, says this, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Christ is going to return. And because it's taken so long in man's eyes to happen, many scoff and they, they laugh it off. But it's going to happen. And this morning, I'd like to help you understand more, more deeply the, the second coming of Jesus Christ. But in order for us to understand the second coming of Christ... We have to better understand the first coming of Christ to begin with. So I'm going to share with you two things this morning uh, if you want to uh, check your message notes. And, and so the first one is this. Christ's first coming wasn't a single event. It was a series of events. And it was a series of events that worked together to accomplish a single purpose, which was to make it possible for a sin-filled man to be reconciled, to be made right with God, to have our sin forgiven. Right after church today, um, our 6th through 12th graders uh, are, are heading out to, to church youth camp. And uh, so Lynn and I will we'll go home, we'll eat lunch, we'll get our stuff packed, and we will also go spend the week with uh, our teenagers at camp. And, and the truth is, church camp hasn't changed a lot over the years. It does have, I mean, for a lot of the camps, they have more production value. And by that, I mean they've put more money and more emphasis in things like lights and smoke and, you know, full bands and stuff like that. And and, and at our week of camp, we, there have been past, past times that we brought in, a, a, you know, a DJ. This year they're bringing in a really, really great illusionist. And so there's a lot of things like that that have changed. Uh, but, you know, really the more things change, the more they stay the same as well. Because really what hasn't changed about camp is it is time for teenagers to be away from all the garbage 
and just have a concentrated time on Jesus and the Word of God. And and I'm going to meddle here just for a second because I, for the life of me, I do not understand why any Christian parent would let their kids choose not to go to church camp. We let them choose not to go have some concentrated time with Jesus and the Word of God. But camp's still the same because that's what they get. So some of you, you went to Lake Texoma. And some of you, you went to Pot of Gold church camp. And some of you, you went to Latham Springs or Brownwood or Mount Lebanon or I could list all of these camps and we go to a place right now called Riverbend. And and the truth is, if you've been to any of those camps or even a camp that I didn't mention, when I started talking about camp, some things started rolling around in your mind. Some, Some camp memories, things that you remember very fondly uh, about your time at camp. When I get to camp today, this this I hope that this like just blow your mind. When I get to camp today, this will be my 45th straight year to go to camp. Here's the point I want to make. Camp isn't one event. Camp is a series of events. So we have the travel to camp, we have the travel home from camp. There's there's dorm life, there's activities, you know, for some of them there's going to be the camp romance. You've got the music, you've got the speaker, you have all of this stuff. You see, camp isn't only about the first part, the trip to camp. Likewise, when we talk about Christ's first coming, we don't only think about the birth. That was just the first event. That was just the introduction. We really think of when we talk about Christ's first coming, we think of really three main things that all work together. The first part was his virgin birth. The second major event was his ministry. For three and a half years, Jesus set about to show people the way to be saved, the way to be reconciled with God, and how to be assured of eternal life in heaven. And the third major event was his death, burial, and resurrection. So, so Christ's first coming wasn't a single event. It was a series of events that all worked together to accomplish a single purpose, which was to make it possible for sin-filled man to be reconciled to a holy God. So secondly, Christ, this is the easiest note blanks of all time because they're exactly the same as the first one. Christ's second coming also isn't a single event. It is also a series of events. It is two major events and then several lesser events. The first major event of the second coming of Christ is what we, what we refer to as the rapture. This is the time when Christ appears and calls every true follower of Jesus away from this earth and to himself. We read about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. The Bible says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we, we, the followers of Jesus, we Christians who are still alive and remain on the earth, will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And there, then we will be with the Lord forever. Now, the thing that I really want to... to, to make sure that you grab out of this passage is 
this this first part of the second coming of Christ, the rapture, the dead in Christ rise first, and then every Christian who is alive at that time will also then go, and we all meet the Lord in the air. You see, God doesn't deal with the saved and the unsaved at the rapture. He deals with them separately. And so it's only those who were followers of Jesus that are called, that he calls to himself in the rapture, which is the very first part. Remember, it's the, the second coming of Christ isn't that, that the rapture only. It's a series of events. This is just the first part of it. And we see this really in greater detail in a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 19. So would you turn there, Luke chapter 19. So to, to kind of give you some background of, of what we're about to read in Luke chapter 19. Um, Jesus is on his final trip into Jerusalem. Why is it his final trip? Because it's just a matter of days before he is going to be taken and put on trial. He's going to uh, then ultimately be, be whipped and beaten and hung on a cross to die. Uh, on the way into Jerusalem and in this uh, last few days of his life, Jesus speaks this parable. And the reason that he speaks this parable is because of what he knew his disciples thought was about to happen. You see, the disciples thought that Jesus was about to set up his earthly kingdom at that time. Um, you, you have to remember, historically speaking at this time, the, the Jews were under Roman rule and they hated it. They were the people of God's covenant. And they knew that God had promised to send them a Messiah, a deliverer. The problem was, is the Jews thought that this Messiah was going to be a, a military deliverer to get them out from under Roman rule. And this should help you understand why the Jews rejected Jesus. You see, we, you know, we have the luxury of being able to look back on all that Jesus did. They, they saw Jesus with a preconceived notion. They saw him as a military leader. And then whenever he did not fulfill what they thought he was going to do, they were like, okay, we're done with you. We're looking for the military leader. See, their identity was defined more by who they were as a nation than who they were in relationship to God. And, and hey, let me just throw this in too. Americans, make sure that, that that you don't find yourself guilty of that. It's very easy to develop a nationalist agenda, and the thing that becomes most important to you is who you are as an American, so much so that it becomes idolatry and takes the place of who we are in relationship to God. And that's where Israel was at this time. They had a nationalist agenda, and so Jesus speaks this parable, Luke chapter 19, uh, let's begin in verse 11. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said, A nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together ten of his servants and divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying... Invest this for me while I am gone. But his people hated him 
and sent a delegation after him to say, We do not want him to be our king. After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money, and he wanted to find out what their profits were. Now, a parable is an earthly story with a spiritual application. And Jesus is telling his disciples that before he establishes his kingdom, because that's what the very first verse said, that's what they were thinking, he must go away first for a period of time. But after he's been away for a time, he's going to return. See, there are two groups of people in this parable that will help us better understand the second coming of Christ. The first group of people are the group that we would call the servants. We read about them in verse 13. It says, Before he left, he called together ten of his servants, and it's those that he divided his wealth among and said, Work until I come back. Um, Understand that these servants are not slaves. Servants are those who have chosen to serve willingly. They have willingly placed themselves under, in this parable, under the authority of this nobleman. And because they serve willingly, they are trusted as stewards of the nobleman's wealth. And these servants represent everyone that has accepted Christ as their Savior. See, again, this is not just a a true story he's telling. It could be true, but it's a parable. And it's representing a, a spiritual point. And so the the servants represent everyone that's accepted Christ as their Savior. True followers of Jesus willingly place themselves under the authority of Jesus Christ. And as a result, he trusts them, he trusts us to continue Christ's work until the time that Christ returns. Well, what is Christ's work? Well, we started reading in verse 11. Verse 10 tells us what Christ's work is. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. So, the first group of people in this parable are the servants. The second group is what I want to call the subjects. And we, we read about those in verse 14. It says, But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We do not want him to be our king. It would be easy for us to read this passage and think that The people in verse 14 are also the servants of verse 13. That's not. It's two totally different groups of people. You see, in a a kingdom, a subject is one who is placed under the authority of someone else, whether they like it or not. These are the people of the nobleman in verse 14. They're not servants who serve willingly. Subjects are those who are placed under authority unwillingly. And if you notice, these subjects are not trusted with the nobleman's work. They are not given the, the money to, to put to work. Subjects are those who refuse to serve. They're only interested in what's best for them, and so they reject the nobleman's authority. The subjects here represent all who have rejected Christ. So the, so the servants represent all the saved, and the subjects represent all the unsaved in this parable. And and as we've already seen, God doesn't deal with the saved and the unsaved or the servants and the subjects at the same time. He calls his servants to himself at the rapture, leaving the subjects, all of the unsaved, to face the tribulation period. So, 
I, I told you that the second coming of Christ is a series of events just like the first coming. So the first major event of the second coming of Christ is the rapture of the church. The second major event of Christ's second coming is when Jesus returns. When the nobleman, after he's been gone away for a while, after he returns to the earth, in this case, after the tribulation period, to establish his earthly kingdom. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31 say this, Immediately after the anguish of those days... Now, in the NLT, which is what I'm reading from, it uses the word anguish, but all of you that are carrying... The uh, probably the American Standard Bible, the ASV, the ESV, King James, New King James. Your Bible doesn't say anguish; it says tribulation, which they mean the same thing. But it, but the word tribulation helps us actually understand what it's talking about here. So it's talking about after the tribulation. So immediately after the anguish or the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens. And there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of the trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven." So immediately after the tribulation, and it is here that Christ Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom known as the thousand-year reign of Christ, or as we've talked about at the very beginning of this series, that seventh day in God's prophetic calendar. This parable shows us a picture of how Christ's return, how the second coming of Christ will happen. Jesus was here. But he went away for a time, and he still has not returned yet. So we're living in the time period that's being described in this parable, the time that we have already established that's called the last days. And, and Jesus has been gone for 2,000 years, and that's a long time. And because he's been gone so long, many are beginning to think that the return is a hoax, that he's really not coming back. I've shared a lot of things with you this morning on the second coming of Christ. But this next thing that I'm going to share with you is the most important thing that I will say today, and it's this. The second coming of Christ is as certain as the first. Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. Um, Jesus had just, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after he had spent some time uh, on the earth with his disciples, he has now ascended to the Father. And in verse 11 uh, some angels said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? They were staring because they just watched Jesus ascend into heaven. They are just staring. He says, Why are you staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Jesus spent 33 years on this earth, and then he went away. But he's coming back. And he's just waiting for God the Father to give him the word, to, for, for God to say, okay, go get him. Why is he taking so long? Because he's being patient. Because while God wants to spend eternity with you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there are also people that don't know Christ 
that he wants to draw to himself as well. To this point, they, they, they're still rejecting him. But it is his grace and his patience that's causing his second coming to be delayed. But when he comes, at the first event of his second coming, the rapture, he's going to find two groups of people on the earth. Servants, the saved, and subjects, the unsaved. He's not going to find good people and bad people. He's going to find all bad people. He's going to find all people that have sin. So it's not whether you were good or bad that's going to determine what happens to you at the rapture. He's not going to find churchgoers and non-churchgoers. That's not what he's looking for either. He's coming back, and he's coming back soon, and he's going to find either saved or unsaved. And the saved will be called to himself in what's called the rapture of the church, and the unsaved will be left on the earth to go through and face tribulation and cataclysmic destruction. And those who face that, I think the number that I shared with you is that probably six-sevenths of the people that enter the tribulation period will not last seven years. They will die. There will only be one-seventh of the world population left that will actually survive the, uh, the destruction of the tribulation period. But for those who are saved, when they're taken in the rapture, they will then appear before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ where they will give account just like we saw in this parable. So in Luke chapter 19, I'll close with this. I want to read a couple more verses. We read verse 15. It says, After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. Remember, we're not talking about unsaved here. We're talking about the saved. And the first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You're a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted to you, so you will be governor over ten cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you were a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. And look at what the nobleman, the, the king, his response was, You wicked servant. See, for servants, for the saved, at the rapture of the church, we will be called to meet the Lord in the air, and then we will go and we will face appear before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ where we will give account for what we have done with that which God has given us to continue His work, which was to seek and save the lost. And some are going to be applauded faithful servants and some are going to be chastised as wicked servants why? because they did nothing but I want you to notice something here they're still servants and they're still going to be in heaven you see it's not your works that get you to heaven it is did you profess Jesus Christ as your savior and call on him for 
forgiveness of sin. There are going to be people that go to heaven that committed their life to Christ and then were just sorry Christians their whole life. And I think for some it's like, oh, well, that's what I'm going to do. I want to go to heaven, but I want to do whatever I want to do here. I mean, as long as I still get to go to heaven. I don't... uh, I don't recommend that. Um, I, I don't. I don't think there's any any words that I could could give you to describe the feeling of unimaginable shame as you stand before Jesus Christ and you. Acknowledge that he died on the cross to forgive your sins. And then he says, you know what? I gave you gifts. I I left you abilities and talents and finances for you to continue my work while I was gone. And you didn't do anything. You, 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 You used it all for yourself. I just don't think there's any words that I can begin to communicate the unimaginable shame that you will feel as a servant who did nothing. Some words to an old song. Some of you have been around long enough that you'll you'll remember it. But the words just go like this. There's only one life. So soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Are you a servant or a subject? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Or have you continued to reject Him? If you continue to reject Him and Christ returns for the first event... Of his second coming, you will be left to face the tribulation period, which you will not survive, and you will also spend eternity separated from God in hell. Are you a servant? Are you saved? What have you done? How will you give account when you stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? Everything that we do, every decision that we make, we should make as if the first event of Christ's second coming were to happen tonight. And that means if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you need to commit your life to Him. God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for you to make it possible for you to be reconciled to God, have your sin forgiven. How long will you continue to reject God? If you are saved and you know you're saved, 
If you are called to meet the Lord in the air tonight and you begin the judgment of your works in front of Jesus tomorrow, will you be applauded as a faithful servant or chastised as a wicked servant? A lot of things you can do with your time and your wealth. But the only things that you do that will last for eternity are the things that are tied to Christ's work of seeking and saving the lost. Are you ready if Christ returns today? Heavenly Father, I I want to pray for everyone here this morning. I pray that if there are any here that have never committed their life to Christ, that they would do that today. That they would cry out to you for forgiveness of sin and for you to be their Lord and Savior because of what you've done on the cross. I pray for every Christian here. Lord, it's easy for us to be like the scoffers because it's taken so long for you to return, we can begin to not live each day as if you're going to return. Help us to do the things in this life with what you've given us. Help us to do those things that matter most. Help us to care about bringing people to Jesus and making disciples. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for your patience for those who still have not responded to the gospel. Help us to be proactive in getting the gospel to them. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.